0: Hello, adventurers. Welcome to part two of the chapter one recap. Uh, we certainly hope you enjoyed the first part. Uh, assuming if you are here for this one that you did. And again, thank you very much for taking the time to listen and hopefully sharing with those you think may also enjoy. And following us on all the socials, Encourageable Party on Facebook and Instagram at incorrigible par on Twitter. And without further ado, let's get right into it. Here is Chapter 1 Recap, Part 2. Oh, Gozer,
1: what's wrong with you?
0: Falzon reels back from the punch. Gozer immediately on her feet. Great axe in hand.
1: Where, purple lady?
2: Where?
0: Once convinced there's no immediate threat. Bryn manages to coax the events of Gozer's dream out of her. Falzrin, recalling some information about the ethereal plane, surmises that this woman used this plane to invade and influence Gozer's slumber.
2: Did she do anything to you? Are you hurt?
0: Gozer, feel weaker. Despite her feeling of fatigue, Gozer dares not risk going back to sleep for the remainder of their rest. Setting out the following morning, the party keeps Victure to the south of them, giving its limits a wide berth, circumnavigating the city like this taking a full day of travel. With sundown fast approaching, our party reaches the road leading into the surrounding wooded area. In the distance, they spot a humanoid figure, any identifying features amorphous in the pending gloom of twilight. The figure's path will undoubtedly coincide with their own. Readying for another night's rest, the party sets up camp in the thick of the trees, with the road in sight. Gozer is quick to bed down, the effects of the previous night still leaving her drained. Only an hour passes before the sound of snapping twigs and crunching foliage underfoot can be heard, the mysterious figure having caught up to the party, determinedly striding towards them. Unconcerned with revealing his presence, The murdered Sardo the Magician appears before them. His skin has taken on a grey and pallid hue. The once brightly colored vest that adorns his ensemble seems to have been drained of all pigment. The long sleeves of his dirty shirt end in tatters at his wrists. The fabric as jaggedly cut as the flesh at the stumps where his hands used to be. Broken and splintered wrist bones protrude from these bloodless, open wounds. Juxtaposed to the dead and lifeless visage of the rest of his body, Sardo's eyes gleam with a reckless vitality, a sordid intelligence. Sardo smiles and waves his stumps around with as much flourish as one can with no hands. Ah, we meet again. I've just the thing for you all, and I promise... He'll be losing on this deal! Locking eyes with Bryn, he immediately moves towards her position. His stare intensifies, and Bryn feels her muscles start to tighten and seize. Unable to draw back her knocked arrow, unable to move.
2: I killed you once! I can do it again!
0: With all of her strength, Bryn breaks free of whatever hold Sardo had over her, and deftly launches arrow after arrow into his undead flesh. Meanwhile Shaft, with rapiers drawn, rounds on Sardo, running him through with enough force to fell any normal man. Sardo's undead fortitude keeping him on his feet, he turns towards the once slumbering Gozer. Now awake, but still on her back with her arms wrapped around theft like he's a teddy bear, Gozer is savagely pummeled by Sardo's meaty stumps that narrowly miss the goblin
2: nobody stay dead
0: anymore. Sloughing off the hits and goblin alike, Gozer leaps to her feet to join the battle in time for Falzern to summon a sphere of fire, ramming it into Sardo, physically weakening him. The effects of the sphere and the continued onslaught of slashing metal and piercing arrow is enough to fail Sardo for the second time. As his burnt, handless body crumples to the floor, A ghostly image is released from it, quickly dissipating into the night air. What the hell? You better burn that body. Shaft sheathes his weapons and motions to Sardo's body, unsure of how he's here. Falzern engulfs Sardo's body in flames using his sphere. I think
1: I've read of this a long time ago. I think this thing that Sardo became is called a revenant.
0: Relaying the few bits and pieces that he could remember from his youth, the party learns that on rare occasions of unjust or wronged deaths, a soul may return to their slain bodies, rising from the dead with the sole purpose of enacting revenge upon those that have crossed them.
2: Unjust death? The guy was a crook and a con artist! I better get paid for killing him again.
0: An uneventful night's rest later, the party continues along the forest road. Stopping before a bridge, the sounds of rushing water heard from below. Blocking their path across the river is a halfling-sized bipedal gold-colored frog person wielding a shortbow. Rustling leaves and swaying branches high above draw their attention to more bipedal frogs of all colors in the trees that line the forest road. Shaft waves at the frog. Hi paladins croaks the gold frog readying an arrow to fire no no
3: we're not paladins we're just heading to goldham and we need to use the bridge
0: shaft lowers his voice and speaks to the party
3: let's try to get across without fighting okay frogman move frogman no
0: die shrugs gozer the frog's large, bulbous eyes blink once, slowly. Then an additional, transparent eyelid blinks for a second time, taking in the party before him. Lowering his bow, the gold frog motions towards the far end of the bridge. We grung follow. The frogs and the surrounding trees drop down from their perches, forming an escort for the party ushering them across the bridge a few hundred feet down the road before stepping aside to allow them to pass.
3: Hey, thanks for letting us use the bridge. Oh, and uh, these paladin guys, Uh, where'd you say they were at?
0: Paladins killing our forest. Through its stilted manner of speaking, the party learns that, infuriated by what is being done to their forest home, The Grung have been ambushing Paladin of Cultus patrols. Any attempts at reaching the towers themselves have only resulted in death, extended exposure to the blue light draining them of their energy, leaving desiccated husks of the fallen Grung. Having scouted Paladin camps at the edge of the blue light, the members that enter the affected area are issued a small metallic cube with runes scrawled on each side this description matching the trinket Falzarin pocketed in Sardo's shop back in Zexa. The paladins return hours later, seeming to have suffered no ill effects from the blue light, and the cubes are collected and carefully curated. Learning all they can from the Grum, and parting ways, it is another day and a half of travel until the party reaches the far outskirts of Goldum. For nearly a mile around the city, Hastily erected defenses pepper the landscape, pit traps, and wooden spiked barriers. Past these, ruined and crumbled buildings have been strategically collapsed in hopes of forming an additional barrier against the onslaught of creatures driven towards the city from the nearby forest. Nearly losing thuff to a triggered pit trap and getting ambushed by two giant burrowing insects in the rubble, the party trudges their way to Goldham's third and last line of defense. A 15-foot high wall, constructed of overturned wagons, barrels, and wooden planks. As far as they can see in either direction, this wall extends around the perimeter of the inner city. Yet another defense that cannot deter the party from their goal. They scale the makeshift wall, finding the immediate vicinity deserted. The buildings inside of the perimeter are undamaged, but abandoned. It seems that Goldham's inhabitants have moved inward, away from the wall, and away from any immediate danger. In the middle of the city, nestled in its safety of increased guard activity and distance from the outer defenses, our adventurers finally meet face-to-face with Goldham's mayor, Blake Lakeley.
3: Mayor Lakeley.
0: Uh, Yes, Mayor Blake Lakeley. I prefer the entire name. Yes, Blake Langley. Blake Lakely. Well, Mr.
3: Mayor Blake Lakely, we're here about the tower job. Now, what information can you give us
0: about it? The mayor explains, as the party witnessed on their way in, that his city is in ruins, and it's killed his commerce. The city isn't called Goldham for nothing. It also turns out that our incorrigible party is not the only adventuring group given the tower job. To hedge his bets and assure that the job was accomplished, the mayor has enlisted as many people who are willing to attempt the job as possible. Many of these groups have a head start on our perplexing party, having met with Blake Lakely days ago. Frustrated and growing impatient with the mayor's pomposity, Bryn says,
2: Listen here, Blake Lakeley. If you want this job done, we're the best in the biz, and yeah, you've already sent out other parties, whatever, whatever. They don't measure up to us, so we're gonna need a bit of gold up front to help get our half-orc friend here healed up. She's a bit afflicted right now.
0: Gozer, still not fully recovered from the purple woman's attack, hangs her head slightly, ashamed that she needs this help. Seeing the mares frown at Brins petulance, falls her in attempts to help.
1: Well, she's also sort of our muscle. It's, it's kind of in your best interest to help us out here.
0: Well, part of the reason you were to see Blake likely was to get some help. If this is the help you need, then so be it. Mayor Lankley dips a quill on his desk into an ink reservoir and scratches out a quick note on a scrap piece of parchment. Give this to Mother Celesta at the Church of Joaquin. With Gozer's strength restored, and a few necessities purchased at MAGIC MAGIC MAGIC, the party seeks lodging at the Jiminy Eagle Inn, eager to assault the towers come morning light. From his room on the second story of the eagle, Shaft catches a glimpse of a passing shadow gliding across the quickly emptying streets below, oddly familiar in its shape, as though he has seen before whatever must have cast it from above. Night falls, and the party rests. Bryn, however, needs no sleep. Her four hour Elven trance is all the rest she requires. Quietly slinking out of the two bed room she has shared with Falzarin, Bryn can't stop thinking of Mayor Lakeley's office. Specifically, a small wall safe behind his desk that she spotted during that previous afternoon. Adeptly avoiding the patrolling guards and staying out of the light cast by the torches that line the main road through golden. Bryn's thieves tools are put to work once more as she gains access to the mayor's office and quickly thereafter the mayor's safe. Inside she finds a sizable bag of gold and a bundle of assorted papers. Leafing through them Brynn discovers construction orders and building plans for structures she instantly recognizes plans for the Towers of the Paladins of Cultus. Among them are two distinct sets of plans, both for Towers, but one of which is a much larger, taller construction.
2: I knew that idiot wasn't telling us everything,
0: Brynn whispers to herself, continuing to quickly thumb through the pages until she comes to a signed work order. The letterhead reads, Lakely Construction, in elegant script. At the bottom, two signatures. one. From a Drake Lakely, and the second belonging to a Samuel Cultus. The worn and faded document is dated forty years ago. Not wanting to arouse suspicion to her presence, Bryn leaves the papers and swaps the bag of gold for a bag of ball bearings, hoping the mayor's favorite pastime isn't counting as gold pieces. As stealthily as she arrived, Bryn takes her leave of the mayor's office and gets back to the street's shadows. Of which there seem to be a few more as she draws closer to the Jiminy Eagle. The torches that previously lit the street have been snuffed out. Using her dark vision, Bryn is able to navigate through the darkness, finding a dead guard. His body is crushed and battered, a thick layer of mucus coating his chest. Movement from behind her She spins on her heels, pulling the bow from her back and readying an arrow in one swift movement. Before her stands an eight-foot-tall, massive toad-like creature, standing on two legs. Its mouth opens to reveal a row of jagged, shark-like teeth. A fleshy, mucus-coated mass propels towards Bryn as the beast launches its tongue at her. Dexterously ducking and dodging, Bryn puts an arrow into its bulbous throat, causing it to reel backwards. Its form begins to swirl and flatten, becoming one with the surrounding shadows, and disappears. Adrenaline pumping, Brynn starts running back to the Jiminy Eagle, in time to see two gargoyles swoop down from the sky above, crashing through two second-story windows of the tavern.
2: Oh crap, I need to go get Gozer,
0: exclaims Brynn as she continues her dash towards the end. The rest of the party jolts awake from the shattering of glass, gozer and thuft face to face with a gargoyle in their room, shaft up against the same and his. Falzern awakes alone, seeing Bryn's bed empty, the yells and cries from his travelling companions already coursing through the inn. Bryn, Bryn, are you here? What's going on? Inquires Falzern, eliciting no response from the darkened room. Suddenly, the half elf is hit. Wrapped up in the toad creature's tongue and swallowed whole, the wizard manages to get off a few quick blasts of magic before losing consciousness in the belly of the beast.
2: Gozer! We've got trouble!
0: Bryn pounds on the half-orc's door, seeing Shaft sprinting out of his own room, a gargoyle following close behind. Together, the two of them smash it to pieces, while Gozer and Thuff drive the second animated statue from their room the creature launching from the broken window, taking flight into the night. Back in the hallway, Gozer asks, You have Gargoyle too? Weapon sheathed, Shaft replies, Yeah. Bran, you too? Where's Falzern? Brennan Falzern's room is empty, its window still intact. Now, the party can hear the blare of a distant siren. Another other patrons of the Gemini Eagles the stream of guards start to flood the tavern, questioning them about the attack. Due to the state of Golden, the city's guard is constantly on high alert, sounding the alarm and responding as quickly as possible once they receive a report of a possible attack. Alerting the guards to Falzerin's disappearance, they begin canvassing the nearby area. Shaft, inspecting the street directly below Falzerin's room, finds a drip of mucus on the pavement. With Bryn's recount of her tussle with the toad creature, the party connects the dots. I think these gargoyles were just a distraction.
2: Gozer want wizard back. My wizard. Uh, we have to go after him. If I would stayed in the room, maybe he wouldn't have been taken.
0: For reasons pertaining more to their own self-interests, be they guilt, declared ownership, for ends to a greater means. What's left of our party tracks the toad creature north, miles outside of Goldum, leading them to a small cave into the hilly terrain. They find somebody's living quarters, a large bed, many shelves lined with dusty tomes and mysterious items, and set into the stone wall, a wooden doorframe identical to the one found in the cave north of Zexa. Oh yes, Father. We will do great things together." The voice of Isabella Good emanates from a descending flight of stone steps, softly echoing from below. Creeping deeper into the cave, the party find themselves in an expansive chamber, nearly sixty feet high and just as deep. Three wooden tables line each of the chamber's walls. Dirty sheets are draped over bulky forms that lay motionless on each of them. Lengths of black wire hang over the sides of the tables, tracing back to a short podium at the far end of the chamber. The only source of light, it emits a faint green glow. Behind it stands the stout form of Isabella Good, and beside her, her Falzer is strapped to a slanted table of his own. He looks pale, weak, A similar black wire protrudes from the flesh of his chest. This, too, leads back to the podium, connecting him to it. The last ebbs of green light pulse down the wire, filling the podium with more of whatever energy seems to be drained from Falzerin. Isabella steps towards Falzerin, forcefully yanking the wire from his chest and discarding it. I knew there was something special about you when we first met Falzerin. A unique power within you. I can offer you more, should you do as I ask. Before Falzerin can reply, Brent pierces Isabella with an arrow. Oh my! She wrenches the arrow from her back, turning to see Falzerin's would-be saviors, and steps back to the podium. Her image shimmers before completely dissipating as she dispels the magic disguising her true form. Standing before them now is an ogre-sized female form. Her arms are thick with bulging muscles underneath gray, wart-covered skin. Bundles of twigs jut out from layers of tattered clothing, obscuring whether they are growing out of Isabella herself or are strictly decorative. Tangled within these twigs are animal and human skulls. The clean, bare bone catches the green glow. Isabella pulls levers and twists dials on the top of the podium. Balls of green light begin pulsing through wires once more, this time out of the podium, traveling to the tables with the shrouded figures lying atop them.
1: Guys, you have got to trust me. This is not a fight we're going to win. We need to get out of here right now.
0: Falzern futilely struggles against his restraints as the once motionless shrouds begin to twitch and move. Two of them slowly sit upright, the filthy sheets slipping to the stone floor to reveal humanoids assembled from mismatched body parts. Reminiscent of the monstrosity the party first encountered in Zexa, these golems of flesh have the appropriate number of parts attached to the correct places. The steel pulsing wires attach at the base of each of their skulls. Their stitching is loose, their movements stilted and sluggish as if they aren't quite done animating. Nonetheless, they round on the party as, appearing from the shadows, the giant toad creature begins lashing out at Gozer with its spindly arms and flicking its tongue at Shaft. Theft! Get my wizard! Gozer bellows as she engages the toad and flesh golems, with Shaft sloughing off the tongue attack at her side with weapons drawn. The fight is short and intense, with Brynn focusing her fire on Isabella as the hideous hag attempts to scoop Thuft up and crush his tiny goblin body, unable to catch the little scamp before Thuft can throw off the leather straps that kept Balzern pinned to the slanted table. More sheets are cast to the floor as two more flesh golems rise, the light no longer feeding into their patchwork bodies via wire, the reanimation process complete. They pull the wires from their own skulls and discard them before advancing on the party. Wisely, they choose to retreat, sprinting back up the long stone stairs, outpacing the golems and fleeing from the cave, traveling through the hills eastward, not stopping until they reach the relative safety of a riverbank. What the hell happened back there? Asks Shaft. Falzern hesitates, quickly considering how much to tell the party.
1: All right, I'm going to be honest with you, and it's not very good. Isabella offered me a deal. Either I accepted the deal, or I died.
2: You made a deal with that thing? Are you nuts?
0: An incredulous and exasperated Brynn throws her hands into the air as Falzer and further explains,
1: Well, look, Brynn, I really didn't have much of a choice. It, It was either death or agree to Isabella's terms. Find her sister, this Erica, and get her out of this group that they're in, this coven thing.
0: In exchange, Isabella has offered the wizard great power and a spot in the coven itself. He must travel to Pisces, the city in which Erica resides.
1: Apparently Erica hangs around with this Danzig fellow. Um, I don't think it should be too hard to find them, really.
0: At the mention of Danzig's name, Shaft interrupts and suggests they travel to Port Randis, the closest city, get as far away as possible from the stitched-together monstrosities and figure out what to do from there. Thought long dead by Shaft, Danzig is the Halfling Ranger's older brother. After getting wrapped up with an acid-tongued tiefling by the name of Surma, she and Danzig disappeared three years ago during a dark ritual performed at one of the aptly-named peaks of the Vorgarag Mountains. Mount Necrosis. The river leads the party to Port Randis, a small but bustling city that sees all types of people passing through the heavily used docks. Following it makes for good travel, but the river itself is in poor state. Its levels have been significantly reduced, now more of a small stream. The water appears to have been contaminated with a strange black ooze. This contamination is found to be the talk of Port Randis, as many businesses rely on the river to operate. Finding lodging at the Asinine Leopard Inn, Falzern is surprised and delighted to be reunited with his best friend, Brendel. Brendel has traveled to the mainland looking for Falzern, having left Heraklion shortly after the wizard did. Speaking in private, Brendel explains to Falzerin that the elders of Heraklion have tasked him with garnering the aid of the Tritons, an aquatic race that exists to battle great evil, should a threat ever arise. The Elders have learned of such a threat. An unknown, impending doom is set to arrive in Aspara, and combining forces with the Tritons may be their only hope. Having been confided in long ago, Brendel knows that Falzern harbors the knowledge and ability to contact the Tritons. As a young teen, Falzern took a near-fatal plunge into the raging seas of Aspara, only to be saved by a triton named Karos Alarsath. In saving him, Karos imbued Falzern with water-breathing capabilities, the wizard now able to grant this ability to himself or another for a limited amount of time. Confiding in Bredal once more, Falzern recounts his deal with Isabella and, without hesitation, Brendel agrees to aid his friend, as does the party, and the newly formed sextet follows the river once more away from Port Randis, heading north to Pisces. With no immediate danger around them for once, the party's curiosity has a chance to once again influence their actions. Killing a rabbit and dipping it into the tainted river The black ooze is absorbed by the dead animal's flesh. It immediately begins to twitch and kick, adding to the quickly growing number of reanimations occurring before the party's eyes. Brynn quickly dispatches the undead rabbit.
2: Guys, don't get any of the stuff on your skin!
0: After another day and a half of travel, the source of the diminished river is discovered in a large tunnel that cuts through the hillside. A 30-foot stone dam blocks the tunnel before them. Ten-foot-wide sections overlap each other, forming a working set of shutters. Were they to be opened, the water would flow freely once more. Trickles of the black water leak through the overlapping sections as it does not form a perfect seal, this clearly being the source of the stream still flowing. Suddenly, there's movement from above them. Three humans come stumbling over the edge of the top of the dam, landing hard on the rough ground with a sickening thud. They get to their feet, revealing bloated, waterlogged features. Growths of barnacles cover much of their pale, grey-colored skin, their drawn weapons spotted and dripping with a mucus-like substance. Despite their clumsy introduction, the three humans inflict many wounds upon the party before being defeated, landing disease-spreading blows to both Gozer and Thuft, their symptoms presenting hours later during their journey. Climbing the dam, the party discovers the tunnel continues as far as their dark vision can see. The tainted waters are nearly overflowing on the inner side of the stone structure that they now stand on. Carved into the very center of the dam is a large, six-pointed star, Nearly three feet in diameter, point to point. Housed beneath this opening is a series of gears and tumblers. It seems this contraption acts as a massive keyhole, the proper instrument needed to open the dam. Uh,
2: guys, I know I'm good, but I definitely can't pick this thing.
0: Finding no clear path past the dam and hesitant to enter the water, the party leaves this discovered landmark and follow the hills outside of the tunnel, parallel to the underground river running through them. Continuing into a shallow valley, they discover that the dam has caused the small lake in the area to significantly grow in size, nearly flooding the entire landscape. This water source is also a dark abyssal black, clearly contaminated by the same source that taints the river flowing through Port Randis. A few hours into their march, Thuft begins to itch, scratching at his wound, wincing at the tenderness of it. Peeling back his leather armor to reveal skin has broken out into pulsating boils, Thuft sways on his feet, nearly collapsing. Uh, uh, King, Thuft don't feel so good. Gozer too has broken out in a rash of boils, once again drained of constitution after just being healed from the purple woman's attack. Brendel steps forward for a closer inspection. Oh, My, my goodness, this, this looks serious. I I may be able to help. Perhaps I can brew up a salve or, or potion that can cure this. Gozer clutches Thuft, keeping him from collapsing. His small frame seems more fragile than ever in her massive battle calloused hands.
2: You saved Thuft.
0: NOW! Glistening beads of sweat fly from her forehead as she snarls at Brendel, A fever has now struck both Gozer and Thuft. Brendel quickly gets to work as the party makes camp. Gozer and Thuft quarantined at Shaft's insistence.
3: You two stay sixty feet away from us. We'll know what the hell
0: you have. Brendel toils for hours over the travel-sized alchemy kit he produces from his bag, crafting a vial of syrupy green liquid. Uh, there should be enough for, for two dose, doses. I, I I do hope this works. Gozer snatches the vial from Falzerin's mage hand, the rest of the party keeping their distance for now. The concoction breaks the fever of the king and her subject, but the boils remain. Uh, oh, p- per- perhaps a good night's rest may help as well? Gozer glares at Brandel, wordlessly bedding down for the night. dawn arrives and the party awakes gozer sits up and inspects her boils seeing that they have partially subsided decreasing in size and number beside her a thuff stirs the goblin's fortitude is not enough to quell the resurgence of the disease the pulsing boils burst expelling a mixture of blood and pus deep red mixing with a putrid yellow even as they burst New boils form and spread across Thuff's entire body. The loyal goblin lets out a horrible scream of intense pain as the newly formed boils also start to burst. It proves too much for Thuff's wiry frame as he convulses once, twice, muscles stressed, body contorted in agony. Mercifully, the event is over as quickly as it began, and Thuff is dead. No! Screams Gozer, falling to her knees, her own anguish nearly matching that of Thuf's in his last breath. A stunned, silent moment passes before Shaft puts a hand on Gozer's shoulder. So, Gozer, how you feeling? Gozer swings a clenched fist at Shaft and attempts to push him away. Narrowly avoiding her swing, Shaft's hands instinctively grasp the hilts of his weapons wary that this could be the same sickness that plagues victor. Though with Gozer, the sickness-induced outbursts of violence would be pretty difficult to discern from the normal outbursts of violence. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, i sorry, I couldn't help Thoft, I, but I I swear to you, Gozer, I, I will cure you! Brendel determinedly exclaims. You...
2: failed!
0: responds Gozer. Only verbally lashing out this time, Brendel safely out of reach from Gozer's despondent growls. and steps in to defend his friend and, once again, attempts to be the voice of reason.
1: Gozer, please, Brendel did the best he could. Now, don't you think we should give theft a proper burial?
0: The half-orc grunts, but nods in affirmation.
2: Warrior They'll get buried with their weapons.
0: Gozer gently lays Thuf's body into the quickly dug grave, covering him with the displaced soil and debris.
2: Are you sure? They're still good weapons, we could use them.
0: Gozer rounds on Bryn at the suggestion of stripping Thuf of his armaments, snarling. You just try. Quickly backing off, Bryn lets Gozer finish laying Thuf to rest, and the party continues trekking north keeping their distance from the lake's waters on their left. It's midday before the party reaches another cluster of hills and yet another river tunnel, cutting through them. This one is much smaller than the tunnel housing the dam, nearly half the size at roughly 15 feet wide. Here, the water flows into the lake and is clear of the black substance, the source of the contamination seeming to originate from somewhere within the lake itself. Safely able to enter this part of the water without risk of coming into contact with the black slime, the party investigates the tunnel, only to find a branching path from the main passageway that leads to a dead end. The muffled sound of metal on rock echoes down the tunnel as tools break through stone. A quickly widening beam of light cuts through the darkness, growing as more rock crumbles into the tunnel. On the other side of this newly formed opening, the party finds three orcs wielding pickaxes in a large, well-lit chamber, their foreheads tattooed with a slight variation of the symbol the party has seen before. Behind them stands one of the Spider-Eel creatures, silently commanding the orcs. The party engages, the Spider-Eel creature momentarily gaining control of Shaft, commanding him to turn on his fellow adventurers. But with the creature's death, this hold over Shaft is broken leaving him with no memory of being controlled. The chamber now rid of enemies, the party can see that this, and the two exits leading out of it, have been painstakingly carved out. Rough tool marks mar the stone walls and floor. A soft, guttural moan carries from one of the exits. This leads to a second chamber, filled with more of the spider eel creatures. These ones pose no threat, however. Their bodies are bloated, long necks bulging and thick. Spindly limbs are rendered useless, unable to lift their bulk. The once hairy thoraxes of their spider bodies now have only small clumps of fur remaining. Jaws still filled with sharp, needle-like teeth. They open and close in a sluggish manner, emitting the lone moan that drew the party to them. Littering the ground around the horrid creatures are dozens of pale, oval shaped eggs. A handful of them begin to move, the fibrous shells splitting open. The party has stumbled into some kind of hatchery. Tiny versions of the spider eel creatures claw their way out of the cracked eggs, immediately attacking the larger, bloated creatures. With voracious appetites, these hatchlings begin to devour the immobile beasts. Stand back, everyone. I'll deal with these things. Falzern reaches into his bag and plucks a gleaming, red, marble-sized bead from a leather necklace and hurls it at the creatures. A ball of fire erupts around them, engulfing them in flames, instantly filling the chamber with an intense heat. It seems Isabella, the temptress that she is, gifted Falzern with a small taste of power yet to come. The second exit from the main chamber the party entered by continues for some distance before it forks into another, smaller cave opening to the right and continuing onward to the left. Among the sound of clanking chains and labored breathing, the small cave houses six orcs and six humans chained to the stone wall, many of them unconscious but breathing. An orc weakly raises his head as the party enters. Clash! Gozer grips her axe, ready to kill him on the spot. Uh, Happy, Gozer. Wait, I beg you. Clash pleads with Gozer, defenseless and at her mercy.
2: No! You die!
0: By life it means nothing. Take it if you must, but if there is any hope for the Vorkarang tribes... And if you have any love left for the mountains, you must find Horek and aid him. Shaft puts a hand up to stay the half-orc. Gozer, wait! Addressing Clash, Shaft asks, You say you know Horek? He's still alive? With some convincing, Gozer allows Clash to continue breathing and answer Shaft's questions. Forming an unusual friendship with an orc in his youth, Shaft and Hork became fast friends, exploring the many summits of the Vorgrag Mountains. It has been many years since Shaft has spoken with Horek, not since he left the mountains to pursue his endeavors in Drukhal. From Clash, the party learns that the spider creatures, called Niyogi, have enslaved the orcs of the Vorgrag Mountains, save for a small band of guerrilla fighters, including Horc, that continue to fight back against the creatures ambushing any wagon transport, leaving Drakal or the mountains. Tending to the rest of the prisoners and managing to free them, the party forms an escort, leading them out of the manufactured cave system. Gozer, the tribes are no more. There is no chief. But should you still have quarrel the next time we meet? It is our right to do battle once more. Clash no matter now. You weak. Gozer turns her back to Clash, showing him he is no threat to her, dismissing him as a leader and a warrior. Parting ways with the rescued prisoners, the party finds themselves a few miles south of Altenchik, where many of the captured humans were from. Making it to the main road, it is two days of travel from here to Pisces, the party finally reaching their destination. Falzern's inquiries at the Jacked Eel Inn uncover some fruitful tidbits of information about Erica and the city itself. Five miles offshore, the waters around Pisces are incredibly deadly. The area plagued by the infinite storm. Careless captains that steer their ships too close are swallowed by its turbulent winds and torrential rains. As a result, Dorset Salvage is a booming business recovering lost items from the shipwrecks, and when possible, rescuing the ruined vessel's passengers. As for Erica, it seems she is the city's persona non grata, an old, crotchety woman living alone up the hill, the children whispering scary stories about her.
1: Well, it certainly doesn't seem like many people around here like
0: Erica. Apparently she lives north of the docks. Falzon relays his newly garnered information to the rest of the party.
2: All right, so you want me to kill her for you,
0: or what? Clearly growing impatient, patient, Bryn cuts right to the point. No, I'm
1: really not interested in shedding any more blood here if we don't have to. I'm hoping for best-case scenario, and she gracefully bows out of the group. We do need to be prepared for the worst, though, in case this goes sideways.
0: Connecting some dots, Shaft theorizes. So Erica is Isabella's sister,
3: and we've seen what she is. So maybe Erica and this storm are connected in some way. Uh, what the heck is the group you're part of exactly?
1: Well, I'm really hoping that Erica is the weakest out of this group, this coven that they're in.
3: Ghosts are not
0: afraid.
2: Goals are killer. Let's go.
0: The encounter with Erica does not exactly go according to plan, listener. A few minutes north of the dock district, The party finds a run-down little shack hanging over the edge of a 60-foot cliff that overlooks the ocean. In the distance, the infinite storm can clearly be seen. It's a wall of swirling and raging water capped by black and grey clouds that blanket the sky. It is very strange to see such a focused and oddly contained force of destruction. After repeated knocks, an old woman opens the door to the ramshackle structure. Despite Falzern's attempt at diplomacy, Erika is not swayed, laughing at Isabella's errand boy and shutting the door in his face. Left with no choice, Falzern once again produces a red bead of fireball and hurls it at Erica's home. The structure catches quickly, billows of smoke filling the sky. The party hears no cries of agony, nor does Erica flee the structure through the now collapsing front door the flames burning away the thin wooden entryway to reveal the inside of the shack. Sparse bits of furniture quickly being reduced to charcoal in the flames, and the open rear door to the hut still swings on its hinges. Keeping her distance from the burning building but peering over the cliff's edge, Brynn points one finger towards the water.
2: Uh, hey Falsy, I think she's getting away.
0: Without hesitation, Gozer sprints towards the cliff and launches herself from its edge into the ocean. Her momentum carries her safely past the jutting rocks of the shore below the cliff, plunging deep beneath the waves. Far ahead of her, and moving much too quickly to catch, a humanoid shape jets through the water below the surface, towards open water, towards the infinite storm. What the hell, Gozer? Regrouping at the shoreline of the beach, Shaft shakes his head incredulously. Goza shrugs. She get away. She swim fast. Their conversation about what to do next continues as two large, mechanical crabs emerge from the ocean, lumbering onto dry land. Workers dressed in Dorset salvage uniforms get out of the machines and pull in large nets that were being dragged behind the crabs. Their contents mostly small shipping crates and waterlogged sacks, the latest salvage haul from the wrecks of the Infinite Storm. Shaft turns to Falzren, eager to settle the matter and get on with the tower job. Well, we did it, buddy.
3: Erica's gone. There's no way the old lady survived a drop like that.
0: Gozer probably just saw a dolphin or something.
2: No dolphin! Gozer see Erica!
0: Unconvinced by Shaft's theory, Falzren attempts to garner the party's favor once more, knowing that he must venture into the storm to pursue Erica and finish his task.
1: Look, you all saw how powerful Isabella is. She has resources that might be able to help us with this tower job if we get rid of Erika, but we need to see this job through to the finish.
0: Falzern pulls out the
1: necklace of Fireball from his bag. This was given to me by Isabella. I don't think I can emphasize enough how careful you all need to be with these.
0: The wizard detaches three beads and hands one each to Gozer, Shaft, and Bryn.
2: I'm thinking we can use those to help us too.
0: Bryn motions to the crab machines, the Dorset salvage workers having now steered the contraptions to a nearby building, securing them to the side of it with a length of chain and padlock. Night falls and Bryn gets to work while the party rests. She successfully procures the crab vessels, the locks no match for her skill with a set of thieves' tools shortly before dawn after some trial and error pulling the levers that control the crab machines the party sets course for the infinite storm the crabs safely submerging below the waves two lights atop cylindrical eyestalks lighting their path staying close to the ocean floor they safely pass beneath the infinite storm underwater vortexes spiral downward from the surface Tapering off to form miniature cyclones well above them. They pass the shattered remains of massive ships, their number impossible to count based on the utterly devastated state of the wreckage. It's not long before the crab sub's eye stalk lights illuminate an enormous skull formed from an even larger growth of coral. Fittingly, the coral is a bone white giving the illusion that some humanoid being of gigantic proportions lost their head only for it to end up here, its flesh picked clean from scavengers. Navigating through the eye socket of the coral skull, the party finds a series of tunnels and chambers, the first of which has three humans bobbing in the water. Translucent, three tentacled squid-like creatures are wrapped around their faces, the aquatic creatures' bodies slowly inflate and deflate in a rhythmic pattern akin to one's slumbering breathing. More of these squid creatures can be found in the next chamber. This one is only partially flooded as well, rising through a tunnel into this pocket of air. Crafted coral basins house the tentacle beasts serving as large holding tanks. Forced to abandon the relative safety of their submarines the party navigates through a narrowing passageway into the next chamber. Wading through nearly two feet of water, the ground beneath their feet is slick with algae. Once again, the party is face to face with Erica. She stands in a nearly empty coral room, with the exception of a familiar wooden frame set into the chamber's wall. This portal, however, is inscribed with six pointed stars that glow a deep purple. We're done talking this time, Erica. Not about to make the same mistake twice, the party jumps into action, battering Erica with everything they have. Much like Isabella, Erica drops her illusory guise, the old woman melting away to reveal a deformed face, one misshapen fish eye much larger than the other, deep blue skin that looks to be slick with slime were you to touch her, and long strands of greenish-black seaweed sprouting from her head instead of hair. She's forced to flee, retreating down another narrow coral tunnel, coaxing the party to follow as she does. Pursuing their quarry into yet another partially flooded chamber, Erica disappears below the surface of the shallow waters, obscured by the coral stalagmites jutting up from the floor, further increasing the difficulty of navigating the cavern. With no target to draw on, Brynn scans the water's surface, ready to fire upon anything that appears. Gozer continues to charge into the room, searching for something to hit. At the other end of the chamber, Erica peers rising from the water, activating a hidden switch to open an escape tunnel. One of Bryn's arrows ricochets off of a stalagmite, narrowly missing the hideous woman, while Gozer continues to charge, following Erica into the escaped tunnel. TO BLAVE! Both women momentarily disappear from sight as Brynn Shaft catch up, reaching the exit's opening in time to see Erica pulling on a dagger-sized piece of wood, removing it from the tunnel's wall. There's a low rumble before the escape tunnel collapses on Gozer, completely burying her. The coral above the tunnel's opening cracks, and a deluge of seawater begins pouring into the cavern. The rumbling continues throughout the cave system. Chunks of coral begin breaking off of the ceiling and crashing to the floor around them. And with it, more and more water begins to quickly fill the chamber.
2: If we stay here, we are going to die. We have to get back to the subs.
0: With the choice being escape or die attempting to retrieve Gozer's body, it is no choice at all. The still living party members make it back to the submarines furiously working the machine's levers, and making out of the coral system before it completely collapses in on itself. The journey back to shore is a short one, and provides little time for grieving. Surfacing the subs, the party comes face to face with a brass-colored dragonborn, and a mermaid-like creature known as a marrow, locked in a contentious grapple. The Dragonborn opens her mouth and lets loose a jet of flame that blasts the Marrow's face. Its great fin that forms a mohawk running along its thick skull begins to sizzle, and steam forms from evaporating seawater as the Marrow goes limp in the Dragonborn's grasp. Discarding the lifeless form, the Dragonborn climbs into a small rowboat that gently rides atop the sea's waves. These waves begin to pick up, as behind them, The Infinite Storm appears to have gotten closer, its winds and accompanying rains now approaching the shore. Rowboat and submarines alike make it to the beach, and introductions are made. I am
2: Shakara. It is a pleasure to meet all of you.
0: Shakara, the Dragonborn Paladin, comes from a small clan well versed with the sea, having once inhabited the Sorrowful Isles before being driven to the mainland during the Paladins of Cultus landing and subsequent destruction of the Isles. Making the distinction between her own oaths and those of the Paladins of Cultus very clear, Shakara explains to the party that she was out gathering ingredients for her friend, Campbell, in hopes that it will aid him in his research of a mysterious black slime she came across in her travels.
1: Ah, so you've seen the Blackwater as well then?
0: Falzerin inquires. Confirming that she has, Shikara also tells them of a captured dwarf with a strange, tentacle creature attached to his face. She witnessed the dwarf being dragged by two humans clad in dark robes. They waded into the water with the dwarf, and disappeared below the surface. Many hours later, the robed figures returned, but the dwarf did not. Clearly having similar goals, and eager to aid those that need it, Shakara agrees to take the party to her friend, to speak to him about the Black Ooze, hopeful that this will serve as one of her great deeds. At the age of fifteen, the Dragonborn left home to adventure, to perform fifteen of these great deeds. One for every year in which she was cared for and nurtured in the clan. In turn, these deeds must nurture and care for others. To date, she has performed three of these tasks.
3: We better get back to the city before the storm hits. Uh, we'll leave these crab things here. Uh, we found them out there in the water and thought we'd better return them to whoever they belong to, but we can barely drive them, so, you know, uh,
0: somebody'll ask about them, I'm sure. Figuring one of Shakara's profession may think poorly of them for being in possession of stolen goods, Shaft elects to abandon the submarines before arriving back in Pisces, feigning ignorance. Narrowly beating the storm's landfall, the new party takes refuge at the jacked eel, resting after their near-death experience and sharing many a drink in Gozer's honor. Shaft hops up onto the bar, tapping his glass and calling for quiet to deliver a toast. Tonight, we drink
3: to King Gozer. May she finally be at peace with the orc warriors that fell before her. Hear, hear! Hear, hear! Hear,
2: hear! hear. I am truly sorry for your loss.
0: The day passes, full of drinks, mourning, and getting acquainted with Shakara. All the while, the infinite storm raging on outside. From many accounts of those in the Jacteel, the storm has never hit land in the many decades of its persisting existence. Perhaps something has changed. The following day, the city of Pisces wakes up to a beautiful, sunny morning. No longer are the seas around the port city the dangerous hazard that they have been for so many years. The vanishing storm possibly meaning that Erica perished in her own collapsing coral trap. After some breakfast and nursing a hangover from the night before, the party speaks with Campbell, visiting his shop. The Golden Icar. Ah, Shikara! So wonderful to see you! Did you procure the ingredients?
2: Yes, I was successful,
0: replies Shikara. A wunderbar! He exclaims. And tell me, who are your friends? Having only had a little over two weeks to analyze a sample of the black ooze that Shikara brought him, Campbell is able to tell the party about two findings he has discovered. Despite its toxic appearances, the substance does not appear to affect living flesh. And the ooze is a compound of some kind, comprised of two parts. One of which is yet to be identified, but the other appears to be blood. To aid the party further, Campbell gives them each a potion of water-breathing. The black slime source is most assuredly in that lake, and traversing its depths seems to be an inevitability. Purchasing a rowboat barely large enough to hold the five of them, our adventurers set out, down the river that flows through the smaller tunnel where they discovered the branching Niogi Cave. It is at the end of this tunnel they see that the contamination has crept further along this water source, now reaching the tunnel's mouth. Paddling to the center of the lake, Shakara, Shaft, Bryn, Falzarin, and Brendel drink their potions, and dive into the dark depths below. Guided by magical flame that barely keeps the darkness at bay, the party discovers an underwater cave opening at the bottom of the lake. Following the steep incline of the lake's bottom, the party swims up until they breached the surface. They are once again in an extended cave system, but thankfully now on dry land. The expansive cavern has three tunnel openings leading in different directions. The stone floor of the chamber therein in has a long black stain that spans from the water's edge to roughly 20 feet away from it. Turning back to peer at the water, they just exited now out of the pressing darkness of it. The party spots a huge shadow under the surface. Unnaturally, the shadow is distinctly darker than the water itself, the party having passed right next to whatever this thing is. Did you see that big black mass that we passed by right in the water there? exclaims Falzerin.
2: Yes, I see it as well.
0: Shakara whispers her reply, wary of the ease at which sound can travel in a cave such as this. The faint flicker of torchlight illuminates one of the tunnels that exit this chamber and the party spots a brief glimpse of a small hooded figure moving down the tunnel away from the party. Quick, let's try and follow them, suggests Falzern. Moving as quietly as they can, the party enters the tunnel, still able to see the torchlight and the back of the figure nearly 80 feet ahead of them. As this tunnel twists around a corner, they momentarily lose sight of the figure only for it to straighten out once more before curving again. This time, the figure and light source are gone by the time the tunnel straightens out for a third time. The smell of decaying flesh assaults their nostrils as they progress further down this tunnel, eventually coming to a fork, the left continuing forward and the right opening up into two circular chambers. The stench is nearly overwhelming here and the party can detect a soft scraping sound originating from the rear chamber. Be
2: careful, I sense the undead,
0: Shakara warns, using her extrasensory paladin abilities. Entering the double chamber, they find it to be filled with rotting bodies in various states of decay. Many look to have been here for quite some time. Among them is a brass dragonborn. His body is covered in barnacles, many of his scales are peeling off. He stands, a wooden sigil in his hand, one edge of it worn down from scraping it against stone floor. Shakara's eyes widen as she recognizes her uncle Vanette, her uncle who perished ten years ago attempting to aid those caught in the infinite storm. Appearing from behind a towering pile of corpses, small hooded figure steps next to Vanette, pulling back its hood to reveal Thoth the Goblin. Pockmarks from the burst boils that killed him still leak pus. He's coated in a layer of grime and mud from the grave dirt mixing with the lake water. Immediately behind him steps a lumbering, undead Gozer. Her furs are still soaked and dripping with seawater. Gross growths of boils have been replaced by sprouting barnacles that creep up her neck. Brendel pushes past the party to join the undead trio.
2: Brendel, what are you doing? It's not them anymore. We've seen this before. They're just bodies.
0: He turns to the party, smiling. His features begin to morph and transform, hair becoming long five-foot tentacles ending in a cluster of octopus-like suckers. His mouth splits, pulling back flaps to reveal jagged teeth of various lengths. A long, thin fin sprouts from each forearm. Brendel is revealed to be a deep scion. Those who perish at sea are often approached by a great and powerful evil and offered the chance to continue living. Being subjected to a terrible and painful dark ritual, bound to serve their new master. Brendel? No! Falzerin is stunned, suddenly unsure of every memory he has of Brendel since befriending him over a decade ago, his most trusted friend. Gozer raises a clenched fist and pulls back her arm, throwing a marble sized red bead of fireball at the party. And that's our show. Our intro and outro music was created by Josh Jarvis. For your own musical inquiries, contact James Mercy Music at gmail.com. All other music and ambient noise is courtesy of tabletopaudio.com. The Incursible Party is sponsored by Critical Hit Design. Visit criticalhitdesign.com for all of your graphic design needs. You can find more info on the characters and world at incursibleparty.com. Enjoying the show? Have any questions or rules corrections? Email us. Contact at encourageableparty.com or reach out on social media. The Incurgible Party on Facebook and Instagram. At Encourageable on Twitter. Using the hashtag afterpartyIP for a shout out during our behind the screen afterparty episodes that drop every fourth release. Happy adventuring!